This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Okay, listen, narrative family. Hey, Nubia. We're trying something. I don't know if it's working yet, but we are live. Um, and if this works, mm, it's going to be a game changer. And uh, so I'm just doing testing one, two, testing one, two. Are y'all, anybody seeing us? I see it's live, 21 seconds. I don't see anybody in it. Can you see us? Who's on know. there? Who's in Nubia? Carl, can testing does anybody see us can you see us anybody papa can you hear me <laughs> sing it no. yes no. yes oh, live. Um, oh yep so i hear it i hear it works. okay so apparently we are we're here hi hi professor what's going on prof how are you happy first week of class happy, uh, listen um thank you thank you let me let me be grateful um, because not many people are able to teach and do the things that, you know, we both are able to do. It is a blessing to have uh, young minds and folk that are dependent on our wisdom and knowledge to impart upon them. So let me just say, you know, yes, I'm happy to be back and thankful. Happy to be here too. Yeah. I'm also happy with this shirt. I like this, this, this. I love that. Oh, oh, yes. That's Nubia. And I'm a newbie in. You see, yeah. I think you got one too. I think you got one uh, coming your way. On the way, uh, you know, I'm a re- I'm I'm putting that on. I'm gonna take that off. That just yeah. might be let me tell you how nice this one because um, Uraeus is a triple triple tri blend or whatever. It's soft. Like I, he sent me a couple of them, so I'm like gonna wear them every day. I'm gonna switch them out. Look, uh, Uraeus, is is there a hoodie on the way? Because you know I'm hoodies. Okay, well, make sure you get a hoodie because he's just. Hoodie. He's testing it out. He's a Disney. I'm like, yeah. Uh, to, the two X hoodie. I'm gonna rock that. That's just gonna be. I'm just gonna wear that around the world. So I'll be okay. out wherever with the hoodie on, taking pictures. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, okay. that's the joint, right? In fact, okay. I'm I'm gonna say less. To, well, we we're live. Uh, so yeah, we are back in class. <laughs> okay. So let me let me do the formal thing for Saturday because this is gonna be the treat uh, for people in Nubia because y'all should have something. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so when we, when we you know, you and I, we have conversations during the week. We could just do this, you know, isn't, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, come in and have it, chit-chat. Yeah, isn't the thing, I mean, how do they do it? Uh, they do it with Patreon, but since you have built a whole new world that's controlled by Blacks, they say, okay, y'all saw this on YouTube, but if you subscribe, you get content that's not going to be on here, and you get whatever's on here early. I mean, there's all kind of, yeah. I see them do that all the time. I'm like, huh. Okay. Now I know how it works. All right. So scene. <laughs> good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to In Class with Carr, Dr. Gray Carr. Thank you for joining us. This is episode seven and seven. 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 Wow. Oh, you know what? The ancestors don't make any mistakes. What we're about to talk about today, those double sevens, we need them. You better. Mm-hmm. Numerology, this no, that's the no, 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 that's you and brother Armstrong and all the people who have the deeper insights. But uh, I know how much seven means to you, and I know how much it means to all of us. But wow, double sevens, double sevens, okay, all right. So, I, I know that today is the day, um, that Emmett Till uh, was snatched up out of his bed in the wee hours of the morning, and uh unthinkable things done to him, things we probably will never know the extent. Mm. You know, I think about that, you know, the powerlessness of his of his relative, 
when two white two white men show up to your to your door and demand that you hand over the boy and you can't do anything because you know anything you do will mean terror for the whole entire not just the family probably the whole damn neighborhood yes it happened frequently and i think about you know today you know we chicago you know they're talking about you know police not showing up for certain things or you know they're doing that, that slow down black people never could rely on calling 911 you know who do you call who could he have called to to get help you know, and if we had the kind of community where we had our internal, our own kind of food of Islam, you know, what would have been the fallout? Would it have looked like Rosewood or Greenwood? You know, because that's how, you know, because when those black fellas went across to save Dick Rowland, yeah, the, yeah. the reaction was, how dare you? In Tulsa. That's right. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the powerlessness. I know a lot of people like, they couldn't have come in and snatched them out of my bed. Yeah, they could have. Yeah. In so. fact, they do it every day. Ooh. They hunt every day. This one's heavy, Professor Hunter. Okay. It's heavy on us. Um, last week, when we marked the um, the beginning of the Nat Turner Rebellion, and we said we we finished that up this week, but um, not but, and we will because what really what remains is very brief. You know, just in terms of some breadcrumbs for folks to follow uh, the life of the family of Nat Turner, which is not at all um, clear whether it's his blood family or not, but we accept the word of the elders who said they were in fact Nat Turner's grandchildren, Miss Lucy May Turner in particular, who was a contributor to the um, Negro History Bulletin. I have those Negro History Bulletins here. Last week we showed her obituary, which appeared in the Negro History Bulletin, but uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But in the context of of the season we're in and by the way we, we we did not lose sight of the fact although we didn't say it out of our mouths it was certainly in our minds and in our spirits and in our conversation beyond that. And when you um referred to and evoked uh, that page from blood in our eye in my eye blood in my eye uh one of two books by george jackson uh, last saturday was also the anniversary of george jackson's killing um in the prison This is a. Wait, are you? This, yeah. This Black August. This Black August is serious, sis. Ain't it? And let me let me just say that George Jackson, he's talking about revolution. Come on now. And as he's talking about it, I'm like, is there any way to do this without shedding blood? And I'm, I'm I was asking that question, and then you just tell me that this month, this week marks the the anniversary of his of his killing and i'm the, like the day, the day you said it the day you raised it was the day the day you raised it was the day okay i, I gotta step up <laughs> no you sevens i'm telling you we are in the right and in between that day in between that saturday and today one way of thinking about the last week in august the last full week in august I wouldn't be mad if we started referring to the last week in August as Emmett Till week. Because what happened in Bryant's grocery and what happened when he was pulled out of his great uncle, Reverend Moses Wright's house, happened over the space of four days. It was the 24th of August. 
when the incident at the store took place. And it was the 28th, today, Saturday, when he was abducted and taken. So this last week in August, the last week in Black August, I wouldn't be mad if we start referring to that as Emmett Till Week. Um, this story is a story of memory. It's a story that really allows us in that Africana Studies framework that we have built and has been workshopped over and over again. It is a narrative that allows us to stretch out and think together and then just sit. And, and, and I will be quite candid in saying that this topic has kind of sat on me and with me and through me and through us now in this conversation in ways that aren't surprising because anytime we start a dialogue with ourselves, it's a very vulnerable place because all those feelings, all those feelings are there. They never go away. As we said many episodes ago and thinking about our brother, Philip Bailey, you know, those sounds never dissipate. They only recreate in another place in time. When he's saying that, I'll uh, write a song for you. And as we have started school, we both just finished our first classes of the semester. And, you know, as we talked about last week, much respect to all the teachers and all the students. Y'all stay safe right now. This thing is raging out there. And, you know, it's going to take more than some claims that everybody's safe to be safe. One of the one of the things that I did in class this week, I've been waiting for this book to come out. It's it, it, it's been out many years in French. The brother who wrote it is an ancestor and we've talked about him and some people on social media asked if we were going to talk about him a little bit today. And I said we would as a point of entry. I think it's actually very good in terms of our Africana States framework. This brother um, from West Africa, very important, uh, very important, major uh, diplomat, intellectual memory keeper, jolly. Jolly meaning blood, um, meaning the one who circulates through the memory of the people, the way the, that blood circulates through the body. This brother, Amadou Hampate Ba, this, um, he was born in 1900, West Africa, or is now Mali. He made transition in 1991. He was 91 years old. This is the most recent of his many, many books that have been translated into uh, English. Uh, Amadou Hampate Ba's book, um, Amkulel, the Fula Boy. He was Fulani. And the reason this book is important to receive, to be, you know, to have a scope that's wider now, even than the French speaking world, ironically, French and English not being his first language. Um, Hampate Ba, as I said, one of the most important thinkers of the 20th century. This is a volume of his memories. Some people might say memoirs, some might say autobiography, but those words are, are far too too small to contain what this is. And I, and, and I bring it up now because when, when we ask the question, when you ask us, can we have revolution without blood being spilled? Well, Malcolm X, of course, would say no. You know, revolution requires bloodshed. And as the old saying goes, to every birth, it's blood. 
we came here in blood and ultimately when the blood stops circulating we die these physical bodies uh expire and so for amadou hampate ba to represent the jolly not the griot that word griot let's spell it out g-r-i-o-t you see the word right take it thank it for its service and place it in the social structure <laughs> you understand? Because that's who we are <laughs> to other people. To the French, these memory keepers were, were storytellers. But to the Africans, the ones who keep the memory, they are in fact the blood that keeps us whole. And as the old song goes, the blood shall never lose its power. Cause it reaches to the highest mountain. It flows through the lowest valley. Oh, yes. Andre Krause said, the blood that gives me strength. Y'all hear that piano? Doom, doom. From day to day, it will never lose. It's power. If you are subscribed to narrative footnote, I played Aretha Franklin live in that church in Los Angeles. Oh, Mary, don't you weep for my black aesthetics class yesterday. Mm. And we spent the rest of class disaggregating what she did in that. But get, and at the end of it, I said, you know what? We'll have that conversation in the music section of narrative because i, I want to just put that footnote in now return through andre crouch the blood will never lose its power to the point of the blood the blood circulates through the body and the blood will never lose its power and as long as you have memory you have the potential of being alive revolution you want a revolution to have blood now spilling blood means repurposing blood perhaps because now in spilling blood the blood has left its purpose it's left its function and it's being wasted around. But guess what? Sometimes a thing has to die in order for another thing to be born. And I think that this world we live in now, the modern world system, is going to, whether people want it to or not, it's going to have to go through a period of blood. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. It is going through a period of blood. Just like we saw a couple of days ago, in Kabul at the airport mm. where Betsy DeVos, the former secretary of education in the United States of America, where her brother, Eric Prince, one of the co-founders of Blackwater mercenaries is charging as much as $6,500 a person. No, actually more than that. That's the, that's the starting price. He's charging for people who want to leave Kabul to pay to get on his chartered planes. That's what he put out. I'm gonna charge it. Now, if you want more, if his mercenaries have to go out into the streets of Kabul and bring you, it costs more, always making profit. That's why they mad because they money machine about to shut down. But we saw explosion that took the lives, not, not of uh, Josh Bolton, warmonger who wouldn't throw rice at a wedding, wouldn't throw a rock in a ghost town, not uh, Mickey Pompous, Mike Pompeo, who wouldn't throw uh, rice at a wedding, who wouldn't throw a punch by self at a punching bag, not him, but your relatives, 
Some of you who had to cycle through the United States military service. Soldiers died yesterday in the U.S., but the only reason they were there were because the other people who died, more of them died, people who actually born and raised and live and will die in Afghanistan, were invaded by those soldiers who were sent over there by people who wouldn't throw a punch in the mirror. But the point is, blood is already being shed because the United States has never won a war of occupation. It didn't win in Vietnam. It didn't win in Iraq. It didn't, it didn't win when it was bombing Syria. It didn't win in Libya. If you define winning by making the lives of the people who lived there better than when you came. But that wasn't your objective anyway to make their lives better. You had other objectives. And guess what? Other countries have other objectives too. We talked about that last week. So there's no need to repeat that because we know that Russia and Pakistan and China are already among others figuring out what they're going to do in that so-called Middle East as the next iteration of what has been called since European penetration in that region, uh, the great game is what they call it, the great game. But guess what? People live there. And if somebody invaded your house, as we talked about last week, you'll fight back. So blood is always being shed somewhere. The question is to what purpose? And so when we think about whether or not we would shed blood here in the United States, the answer to that is we've already shed blood. And as Malcolm said, if you're going to shed blood, maybe you want to make it even Stephen. <laughs> in other words, you're already shedding blood. Somebody's shedding blood while we're in here right now. But how does that tie to Emmett Till, to Nat Turner? It's very clear here in Black August, because Black August is a time when we pause to commit ourselves that if blood must be shed, it must be shed in order to bring a better world here, in order to give birth to a better world. And in the case of Amadou Hampate Ba, who, for the course of the 20th century, apprenticed with some of the great jollies, some of the great memory keepers, some of the great blood memory of the world in West Africa. He reminds us that the purpose of a memory keeper is to build a better society and that there are rules. So let's take a minute, because I, I, I did this in my Education in Black America class as I was reading. I just got the book. It just came out. And... Um, 2021 uh, Duke University Press, which I always laugh about because I'm like, all these presses, and I'm glad that they published it because I want to read it. Right, the, my other copy is French; it's a French press, and I'm like, where are the African press presses? Where are the African publishers? Fortunately, we have Black Classic Press, we have Third World Press, we have Africa World Press. We have the capacity now to publish. We have now in narrative an expanded capacity where we have electronic books with us having conversations as you reading through and much, so much, 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 much more to come. But I see somebody like Hampate Ba and I'm saying, thanks Duke University Press, but I know about the Duke brothers and the history of that North Carolina uh, territory that they were able to acquire and then what eventually becomes the university name for them. I know about the campus of Duke University where Julian Abel, a black architect living in Philadelphia, mapped that campus out to help design that campus and then never saw it with his own eyes because he refused to travel south in segregated cars and go to a segregated state to see his handiwork. So I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm less than enthusiastic and excited that it would be Duke University Press laying in a cut, waiting till the smoke clears to cherry pick black intellectual work and drop it into as a feather in their cap. But neither here nor there, Duke University Press 2021. This is what Hampate Ba says about the nature of memory. It's very important. 
He says a number of friends who have read this manuscript were surprised that the memory of a man over 80 years of age could reproduce so many things in such minute detail. Pause there. Because in a minute, we're going to dive for just a second into the memory of Lucy Mae Turner, the self-professed granddaughter of Nat Turner. And then we're going to examine the memory of those who were around when Emmett Lewis Till took his last breath, including some brothers who heard Emmett, Emmett Till take his last breath. And if you heard that and said there were people who, yeah, black people? Yeah. Why didn't they? Okay, yeah. Because see, we're not talking about the social structure. We're talking about the governance structure. Who are we to each other? Oh, it's a fascinating story around Emmett Till. So Ampate Ba says, they, they were surprised when they read this and said, how could you over 80 years old? How could you remember stuff like that? He says, this is explained by the fact that people of my generation and more generally, people who come from an oral tradition and who did not rely on writing processes possess memories of a rather inordinate fidelity and accuracy. From childhood, we were trained to observe, to watch, and to listen, so that every event was inscribed in our memory as if it were in virgin wax. Everything was there, the setting, the characters, the words, even the most minute details in clothing. For example, when I describe the uniform worn by the first circle commandant that I have ever seen in close proximity during my childhood, I do not need to remember. Rather, I see it all on sort of a interior screen. And all I have to do is describe what I see. Pause there and think about how many of you, the first time you saw Jackson's photograph of Emmett Till in that casket? Those of you here who were children, who may have been in Chicago, probably a lot of us in this room right now know people who actually went to the church and saw Emmett Lewis Till in that casket. I know I know several because they're not that old. It's 1955. I'm talking about people who were children then who will never forget it. When they close their eyes, like Hampate Ba, they're not remembering. They're describing to you what they see. He goes on and says, in order to describe a scene, I only have to relive it. And if a tale was told to me by someone else, it is not only the content of the narrative that my memory has recorded, but the entire scene, the bearing of the narrator, its clothing, his gestures, his mimicry, and the ambient noises, such as the sounds of the Kora that Jelly Ma'adi was playing while Wangarin was telling me the story of his life and that I can still hear to this day. When an event is reconstructed, the entire film recording runs from beginning to end. That is why it's very difficult for an African of my generation to summarize. We tell the entire tale or we do not tell it at all. We never tire of hearing the same story again and again. For us, repetition is not a flaw. After we read that together, I asked my students, what y'all think about that? And one by one, those 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds started telling stories of events, not only in their lives, but events that came from the stories they had heard from their elders. This is where the governance structure lies. Emmett Till is important to the United States of America 
as a martyr. But he was Mamie Till Mobley, maybe Mamie Till Bradley Mobley's son. I put all those names in because she was married like four times. <laughs> and her husband, her last husband, Bradley, who passed away of a stroke uh, about three years before he did, she did, he made transition in the year 2000. She heard her in 2003. In other words, not that long ago. He uh, became a fairly successful car salesman, Cadillacs, one of his specialties in Chicago. Uh, he accompanied her on her speaking tours, in her work, and until right this moment, some people might not know that she was married for years. She married him two years after Emmett Till was killed. In fact, he went with her. They was going together when Emmett, when they sent Emmett, when Reverend Wright came, Moses Wright up to Illinois to get Emmett and take him down there that summer in 1955. They was going together. And in fact, when they brought his body back to, uh, to Illinois, to Chicago, he went with her to the funeral parlor and identified the body by the haircut he had given Emmett before he went down there. How does how does Emmett Till, uh, not yet stepfather, but married her two years later, had been going together time? How he disappeared from history because he's not necessary to the social structure. They want us to be crying martyrs in the sacrifice because they want our blood to be spilled. They just want it to be spilled for democracy. Mm. That's beautiful. I love it. Here, let's call the social structure for the next 10 seconds hell and say, you go there to hell and stay. Well, we're going to stay over here with ourselves and have this guy. Again, this, this double seven is heavy on me right now because this story is very personal to us. This story of Emmett Till. Let me pause here and finish up just a minute. We won't even spend much time on this. I would direct folk if you want to know. In fact, oh yes, look at that. My God. Now see, these are black funeral directors. That's, I mean, there's a whole body of literature on Emmett Till that has to be explored. Lord have mercy. That 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 young man's face is gone. Imagine being these black funeral directors that had to deal with that. Imagine being a black funeral director in 2021, having to deal with violence. Violence at the hands of police and violence at the hands of each other and violence at the hands of anyone, period. Reconstructing him. One of the ways he identified the body. Yeah, I gave him that haircut. What's left of the hair? Mm. And look at Gene, beautiful black man holding Mamie, holding her, holding her hard. Holding her hard. You know what? Thank you, Professor Hunter. Thank yeah. you so much. Because that's the brother that took the picture. Jackson, that took the picture, the other picture that we normally see. He took mm -hmm. those pictures. That's Ebony Magazine. This is, the, this is the importance of the Black press we were talking about. That's exactly right. Oh, my goodness. You know, the irony is that he didn't take the picture that we'll talk about in a minute of uh, of Emmett's great uncle, Moses Wright, Reverend Moses Wright, Reverend Wright, <laughs> who, uh, who the social structure refers to as Mose. Mose Wright, sharecropper, testified Reverend Moses Wright, Church of God in Christ. Yes, he sharecropped for a living, but he was a minister in the Church of God in Christ and had a church there. But see, that's not important to y'all. <laughs> but David Jackson didn't take uh, the picture of Mose Wright and neither did the great 
uh, photographer Manetta Slat, who took Manetta Slat, who took that uh, Miss uh, Miss uh, King's picture there, the great Ebony Magazine photographer Manetta Slat, because you know I went and pulled the books, the ones I wanted to pull I couldn't because I got those years ago before I moved uh, down here to, to to the DC area, so they're in storage. But I wish I could have. Uh, been able to go somewhere and, and, and dig them out of those boxes. It's too many for me to find at, at short notice. And that is um, the person who took the picture of Mose Wright in that courthouse during the trial in September 1955 was Ernest Withers. And we've talked about Ernest Withers, the photographer who traveled with Dr. King, who took so many incredible photographs out of Memphis. Um, the one who was on the FBI payroll. There have been a couple of books written about him because they had him jammed up and people saw oh, he was he was the feds. Well, yeah, he was on the payroll. He wasn't giving them nothing they didn't already have and they had him jammed up. I mean, all kind of, it, it's complicated history, but my point is this. Even the photographer who went to the trial wasn't Jackson, wasn't Slet, asleep, wasn't Manette asleep. It was a white dude. But here's the interesting thing about that white dude. He's ear hustling, what the young people call ear hustling in the courthouse, providing intel to the black reporters who covered the trial in September 1955. And one of those black reporters, we're going to bring her up too, because she, Clyde Murdoch Larson, was covering the trial, the Emmett Till trial for Johnson Publications. She's a fascinating history story on her own right. This is just a little bit. We're going to talk about Lucy May Turner for a second and then keep going. But think about this. If any of these names, if these are names you've never heard before, if you heard of Clody uh, Murdoch Larson, C-L-O-T-Y-E, Clody, Murdoch, M-U-R-D-O-C-K, Larson, L-A-R-S-S-O-N, you may not have ever heard of her. She published one book in her lifetime, 1965, it's called Marriage in Black and White. Why? She married a Swede and left the United States in 1961 and only came back to visit. Only came back to visit. She made transition in 2009. But on one of her returns to the United States in 1986, late 1985 through 1986, she went back to Mississippi to that courtroom. She went back to the region and she published her second article in Ebony Magazine on the Till case. The first one was when she was down there reporting on it. The second one was 30 years later. She said, what has changed since I've been out of the United States? And she saw what had changed and what hasn't. And we'll talk about that too. Y'all can look that up in Ebony Magazine. But at any rate, let me let me finish on Lucy May Turner right quick. I'm, I promise we won't take but a second because this, this is tough. Um, This is tough. If you want to read... Uh, about the family of Nat Turner. Lucy May Turner takes it from 1931 until 1954. In other words, from, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, from 1831 to 1954. In other words, from the year of Nat Turner's August Rebellion, 1831, until the year, the year of Brown versus Board of Education and the year before Emmett Till was murdered. And some people say that the murder of Emmett Till more so than even Brown versus Board of Education sparked the civil rights movement. That's that's I think saying too much, but I don't want to let me let me let me slow down and get all this together. If you want to go find it, you can find the articles that uh Lucy May Turner wrote about her grandfather and his and her family in the March 1955 edition of the Negro History Bulletin. That's part one. 
and she came back in the April edition because she wrote a long piece over like 11 pages. So they split it up in the April edition of the Negro History Bulletin. That's volume 18. I, I won't I, I, I'll refrain from 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 pulling those up, but you all can find them. In fact, uh, the the uh, the Nubia and the narrative family broadly, you know, we will have those because they're easily retrievable. So anyway, I, I'll keep this short. Um, the, his, the scholars say, well, we don't know. Did Nick Turner, we think he had a wife. He talks about having a wife. You know, what was her name? Not sure. His mother, father, father ran away. Mother may have been from Africa, grandmother from Africa. Uh, yeah. Well, what about the wife? We're not sure. Did he have a son? Uh, maybe the son. Maybe he had a son. I think we think maybe his son was named uh, Redrick or something. Nah, Lucy Turner said my daddy's name was Gilbert. And my father was the son of Nat Turner. He said he was the son of Nat Turner. He knew his mother. Nat Turner's wife was his mother. And Nat Turner's wife was Fanny. Scholars would say, well, there's no way to corroborate that. Even Henry Louis Gates. Henry Louis Gates has said, you know, among others, well, we've done the research in the uh, in the Southampton County records and we've looked around and we see no testament, no record of. I'm looking at him like, bruh, I accept that 100 percent. You should probably stay over there in the uh, social structure, which we temporarily gave another name about two minutes ago, but that's okay. You stay in the social structure. That's fine. Because you are looking for a record to attest to mouth to ear memory. Perhaps before you go, you should reread Hampate Ba because she's telling you what her daddy told her. And you weren't there and I wasn't there. Now, the deeper question. And this is a question actually raised in one of the more recent books published on Nat Turner. I'm sorry, on Emmett Till. We'll bring these cats together. Called Remembering Emmett Till by Dave Till. This is uh, Dave Till's book, Remembering Emmett Till. And in this book, what, what he talks about is the argument that academics get into between memory and history. It's very interesting. Uh, let me see if I can find uh, the page and, and maybe I maybe I won't read from it uh, directly because, yeah, I'll just I'll just summarize it. What what Dave Till says. And, and by the way, those of you, we, we're, we're going to finish on Lucy Turner, but I just want to mention this. Um, yeah. Let me let me just quote what, what Till says. We'll come back. I mean, uh, what Till says, T.E.L.L. David Till about Emmett Till and memory. He says that academics like to talk about the idea that there's a distinction between history, what you can prove with records and documents and verify and check and go, and memory, how people think about a thing in time and space as it is related to them and as they remember it over the years. What Hampate Ba reminds us, and when I was reading Hampate Ba, and I told my students this, I said, when I was reading Ba, it just reminded me of a, of a great Babalawo who I had the honor to meet because his son is my colleague at Howard. Uh, the son is Kola Abambola, one of the great uh, scholars. Uh, he's in the philosophy and African studies departments at Howard. Um, he is also a Babalao. Uh, he's a, a Yoruba priest. And uh, just he grew up in that tradition from his first memories. In fact, he said, I was begging my daddy, can I be a priest like you? And he said, I want you to watch me. I want you to watch all my friends. I want you to absorb all this. And then when you get of age, I want you to go out and study the other ways. And I want you to learn as much as you can. And after that, I want you to make up your mind what you want to do. So he has a couple of PhDs. He has a JD. 
uh, he's a, I mean, brilliant, 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 brilliant brother. Very good brother. And also after doing all that, he said, yeah, I want to be about like you. So I was okay, no problem. <laughs> because but the point is that what I'm trying to say is that African knowledge systems are older than any Western system. They stand up to any world system, any system in the world. We must stand in them and have dialogue with the entire world and not shrink from dialogue for fear that somehow they're inferior. They are not inferior. And so when you start talking about memory, memory serves a different function than history. History is from the Greek, the word history itself, historia, to know by writing. And believe, we, you, y'all know us, you know me and Professor Hunter, and we are so thrilled among many other things that we see so many people buying books now. We're in these conversations. Get, you know, I'm a book person. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. However, that's not the only way to knowledge. And as Hampate Ba reminds us, in those African traditions, the memory is so well developed that when you ask somebody, so you ask somebody of my generation, oh no, I'm not remembering, I'm describing what I see in my mind because I froze it in time. So in a minute, when we start talking about Emmett Till, you'll see that. And what Lucy Mae Turner is saying about her family and Nat Turner, that's coming from mouth to ear memory. And her father was the little boy, was Nat Turner's father. And he, I'm a son, and he remembers Nat. He remembers his mother. He remembers when his mother was sold. He remembers when they broke the family up. He remembers when he was sold away. He remembers moving out of Virginia. He remembers Gilbert Turner when the Civil War came and they pressed him into service as a body servant to the enslaver who had him enslaved. He remembers the end of the war. He remembers moving. He remembers not being allowed any books, but listening to the conversations that they were having around the table and the nervousness. He remembers his family. He remembers all of that. And after the heat of the Civil War, what happened to him then? He remembers moving out. He remembers going to Ohio. Gilbert Turner, the son of Nat Turner, and his, and his wife, had two little girls, Fanny and Lucy. Miss Fanny, Miss Lucy, neither one of them ever got married. And Fanny, the older sister, was Lucy's hero. Miss Lucy in those, uh, in those two articles relates how Gilbert Turner in Zanesville, Ohio, purchased a house worked hard then the house was set on fire and burned down and then he got a brick residence got a brick residence the family was raised in relative comfort and how she and her sister were raised and were doing okay but it's okay though because you gotta understand that you know while that was going on gilbert turner learned carpentry he sold fruit he and the family moved from house to house, but the family was comfortable. And after that first house burned down, he said, she said, my daddy found a big house, a dwelling in town that was abandoned and was able to buy it for the lumber. Lucy Mae Turner said, my daddy tore that house down plank by plank and used that lumber to build a whole new house. I was seven years old. I used to sit in the yard and listen to him talk to the people. And I used to sit there as the protector of the yard of the house. And everything he built didn't fall. And they were back 
on Cooper Mill Road in a comfortable one-story cottage built out of the materials my daddy bought and stored out and built back up. Her mother's father was a minister, Reverend Isaac Jones, who had been in Virginia. He had come out of the condition of enslavement. But Lucy said, I was a favorite child with all the adults who had come through slavery. All the people who my father knew, who associated with and helped him. Why? Because they would come when they were destitute or they needed help and they would stay with us sometime. But I would sit and listen to the stories. And at night, they would, you know what kind of stories they would tell us? These old head Africans, some of them from Virginia, would go through the history of Nat Turner's insurrection. Brother Gates, I love you, brother. You're a good brother. You've done a lot for the race. Stay in the social structure. Because <laughs> you out here asking the archives. And did you ask Miss Lucy? Did you ask one of our subscribers, Professor Hunter, one of our subscribers in narrative who since last week tweeted at us and now, now we got Nubia, we had a conversation in Nubia about the fact that his elders knew Miss Lucy May Turner in East St. Louis, Illinois. I said, oh, okay, PBS. Yes, Professor Gates has gonna have a word with you in the social structure. We're over here, what y'all doing? No, we. this is a hard line right here because see over here the blood will never lose its power. You just go over there. We're gonna go find these old heads who knew somebody who knew Miss Lucy and see can we get some more stories? Cause she said, when I was seven years old, I used to sit around and these ex-enslaved Africans would tell us the story of the Nat Turner Rebellion. Now that ain't in none of these books. And I done read them all on the Nat Turner. Yeah, that's beautiful. I want them all. I want to know them. I want to think about it. Yes, and maybe there's a footnote in there. But I don't see Lucy Mae Turner's thing quoted because y'all be around like, well, we don't know whether or not she was. About. Okay, well, what about them people she was talking to? I don't know about that. What were their names? Their names were governance. That's what their names were. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Their names was no snitching. Because these same Negroes were the ones y'all walked past on the way to the bathroom and they was in the kitchen cooking your breakfast because they don't tell y'all the story about and then yo when Sam when, when Will the Executioner cut that man's whole head off and brought it out there and showed it to the rest of them, it was a day I promise you my granddaddy told me it was the proudest day of his. Oh, hey man, yeah, your cornbread's ready. What y'all remember is your cornbread's ready because they ain't telling you the story <laughs> that they tell. And then guess what? They left this little girl and she grew up to be an elder and she put it in the Negro History Bulletin. And Carter Godwin Woodson had the good sense to say, publish that. And she was a faithful member of the uh, of the uh, Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. And when she passed, they put a death notice in the Negro History Bulletin because she was the one that kept the books for the local chapter and also gave money to set up the oratorical contest and the writing contest for the school children. Because see, them two, Miss Fanny and Miss Lucy, taught. In fact, her father, when he passed away, he passed away in 1914. And she had to help the family go on. So she and her sister, Fanny and Lucy, finished up grade school in Zanesville, graduated from high school. And Lucy said, I'm going to college. She got a whole scholarship to Ohio State. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have money for room and board and transportation. And so she, she didn't have the money to do it. So Miss Lucy... Well, she put off her hopes. And when she got up a little money, after three years, she didn't go to Ohio State. She went to Wilberforce, HBCUs. You got to understand. 
we can talk about we, we've done we talked about hbcus a lot let me just mention that the great debate in my adopted hometown of philly and all around the uh state of pennsylvania and in the hbcu world the great debate is between lincoln and cheney which is the oldest hbcu cheney says uh, uh cheney says us lincoln says yeah but in 1837 y'all were the institute for colored youth you really weren't school 1854 we're ashman institute that was higher ed now we're lincoln university yes we're the oldest fine i don't get in that beef but one of the oldest as well let's add the final one that i'm gonna mention is wilberforce the african methodist episcopal church the ame church and one of the great jegnas one of the great master teachers that trained me the great jamie coleman williams still alive going on 102 102 living in atlanta who was my professor at tennessee state she and her husband mcdonald williams she's a wilberforce graduate you understand because her daddy was a minister in the ame church her brother was a minister in the ame church and reverdy ransom gave her a scholarship to wilberforce y'all look up r-e-v-e-r-d-y ransom r-e-n-s-o-m the reverend reverdy ransom the bishop of the ame church and when you look at him you're like wow did you know i ain't know him but the hand that he touched touched me this is what this man is talking this is what Hampate ba is talking about but she went to will before she graduated from will before in 1908 she taught for a year at lincoln high school in paducah kentucky remember when we talked about winnie young it's crazy how all these stories connect them and then in the spring of 1911 she took a job in east st louis so I'm sorry, her father passed in 1914. So all this was going on while her father was alive, but he was too old to really work by then. So I'll, I'll, I'll end with this and y'all can look this up because y'all can read all of this for yourselves. Gilbert Turner's daughters, Fanny and Lucy, ended up both in East St. Louis. They moved her mother there in 1918. Her mother, Sarah Turner, as in Nat Turner's daughter-in-law, passed away in East St. Louis in November 1935. That means that her mother, Lucy's mother, Sarah, her sister Fanny and Lucy were all living in East St. Louis when they had the East St. Louis riot during the red summer of 1919. I should look that up. Oh, I, I should put one footnote on the Ohio State piece. Even though she went to Wilberforce and got that degree, she decided, what the hell? I'm going to get a degree from Ohio State. So in 1935, she picked up a bachelor's degree. What the hell? And just for fun, got a master's from the University of Illinois in 1942. And then in June 1950, became the only colored woman at that time to graduate from the St. Louis University Law School. This is Nat Turner's granddaughter. And on that note, y'all go read the rest for yourself. Let's go back to Emmett Till. The point is, y'all stop. The social structure wants to freeze Nat Turner since they can't get rid of him they'll just stop him there in 1831 and what we just did is bring him all the way up because his blood never lost his power and let's just say that Gilbert was not the son of Nat Turner I just asked a three-word question what's your point because he said he was and that's what he told his children and that's what they carry to their graves. And that's what we have in the memory. And those brothers and sisters who congregated around him there in Ohio, telling them stories to that girl, sure thought, and you can't track none of them now because you ain't even thought about them, but that's okay. We'll leave that to another day. So that's Nat Turner here in Black August. And we know then that we'll spend a few minutes now on Emmett Lewis Till and his family. We've already started, but 
let's do this. Let's do this right. Let's do this right. <sighs> I had to think about this. Maybe we start with something we've talked about before, but I want to mention. And by the way, for those of you, before we get into it, I pulled a few of the Emmett Till books. There are a number of Emmett Till books, and um, I didn't, I, I didn't, you know, some of them I have in stores. Many of them I got around here, but rather than pull them all, I just would mention them because in narrative, of course, you see the books. We have them featured. You can see them, you, and, and we have the links. We got our black bookstores. Uh, Keith Bochamp and um, our brother Stanley Nelson both did documentaries on. Oh, wait, Professor Hunter, am I? Did you interview one or both of them? It seemed like you talked to Keith Bochamp, but did you talk to him? It would have been years ago. Ah. Do you remember Emmett Till ever coming up in a conversation you've had on air? No. For some reason, as I was rereading, I was thinking, I think Karen talked to him. Keith Bochamp is a filmmaker. He's a documentary filmmaker. He's made mother, and of course, Stanley Nelson is Stanley Nelson. PBS, he's the Black Panthers and all the other ones. He did, I think maybe 2005 or six, uh, Nelson did one. And then Bochamp did one in 2003. He's very good. He talked to a lot of the people uh, who knew Emmett Till, his cousins, including the brother uh, Simeon Wright, who was Moses Wright's uh, youngest son, who was in the bed that night when the white boys came. J.D. Bryant came over there. All right. So, but um, I actually, uh, I, the person I, I talked to most is the the brother that did the book with Mamie. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Chris. Yes, 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 yes. Because she told her own story. Yeah, she did. That's exactly right. That book, the year, I want to say the year, maybe she made transition. Yeah, I have that book. Yes. Fantastic job. And he, he was working with the documentarian, but that's who I was close with. He's from Chicago. Yes. Yeah. All right. Actually, no, that's perfect because that remind that, that really does reinforce the fact this is a governance structure question, y'all. These people did not die with Emmett Till. They lived until this moment. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Death of Innocence. Yeah, maybe Till Mobley's book, Death of Innocence. That's exactly right. And she, oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. I remember when that book came out, that must have been, I don't know, 2002, three, because we had, we were having freedom schools and it was just a reminder of the fact that this social structure freezes our people in black and white at moments where they can drop them in like a pair of earrings on the body of America, not the blood of America, but a few little accessories or drop them in like a little footnote in white history. And so you freeze Rosa Parks on that bus, freeze Martin Luther King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, freeze John Lewis on that bridge, freeze Emmett Till in that casket and be done with it. Well, what about his mom? Well, she was crying, freeze her as a young sister with the veil, not even with her boyfriend who became her husband for 40 some years. He passed away in 2000, the year 2000. He, they got married in 1957. 43 years of husband disappears. And the picture you showed us, for some people, that's the first time they've seen them together. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He heard chauffeur. <laughs> this nigga wrote something like Cadillac. I mean, it's all in Chicago. And then, but, but, but the reason you know I think about it is that it never froze in history for us in the same way. So we'll start these few minutes on Emmett Till directly with the casket the young man lay in for decades. He's no longer in that casket. That casket is at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And we've talked about this before, but I didn't talk about the details. And, say, and as I said, there are a number of books on Emmett Till. We've mentioned hers, which is one you probably need to start with. We, we need to start with Death of Innocence. Um, there are children's books. 
A Reef for Emmett Till, for example, Marilyn Nelson's book, A Reef for Emmett Till. How do you write a children's book on Emmett Till? How do you deal with it? Well, we have to do it. In fact, one of the most powerful moments that I've had in recent memory, I was in a bookstore here in Washington, D.C. And I walked in looking around and I came in and the lights were a little dim. Everything all right in here? It's a white bookstore. And I realized I had come in in the middle of the day, which I normally don't do. This is a bookstore I usually visit. Oh, wow. Wow. It just occurred to me. Two of the books I'm going to talk about. One right now and one I'm going to show you. Same bookstore, Politics and Prose, Connecticut Avenue. You know, y'all see it sometimes. You go on C-SPAN books or whatever. It's one of the kind of marquee white bookstores where they bring in authors and all kind of things. They are some fantastic. And I usually, I usually see the authors at night. In fact, the book I'm going to tell you about in a second, I saw this author at night. I came from the law school. In fact, I let my class go a little early, about 10 minutes early, so I could get there in time. Because I really wanted to see this brother. And, uh, and you'll know why in about maybe five minutes. But this one was like noon. I come in there. And so I came in and I realized this place is packed, but it was packed with children. And when I say children, I mean, look like maybe... The oldest of those kids may have been like 12, 13 years old. They weren't little children. They weren't like first or second graders. Looked like maybe fifth, sixth, seventh graders. And there were probably, I don't know, 50 or more. They were all packed in the back of the store where they have the reception. So it may, it may have been as many as 100. Looked like they were, y'all brought school buses in here, all these kids. And at the front, they were getting ready, just getting ready to have a, a little program. And I said, well, maybe I must come here during story hour. And so I asked as I came in the store, I said, what's going on? I said, oh, you're getting ready to have an author is getting ready to talk about this uh, book she's written. I said, oh, okay. And I looked down the back of the store and it looked like a lady had, it was a black lady. I said, oh, I said, what's the book? So the, the counter uh, person picked up a copy and gave it to me. The name of the book, it's a young adult book. It's called Ghost Boys. Ghost Boys? What's Ghost Boys about? I opened it. Ghost Boys, this black woman who had a son, as she told these little children, her son's grown now, but she said, you know, I, and, and, it, and it was almost all white children. That's the other thing. I'm like, mm, white kids. She said, my son um, is an adult now. His father is white. And as he grew up, he encountered problems. And then as a as an adult, his father, the fact that his father is white doesn't mean anything. He's had encounters with the police. The fact that his mother and father are middle class, that doesn't mean anything. You know what? She said, I had to get that out of my spirit. This book I wrote for y'all is about a little white girl. That's a aha point of entry. What is ghost book? She encounters the ghost of Emmett Till. And the ghost of other black boys been killed by white violence. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. What did I stumble on? You got all these white children. What is your plan? You know what I'm saying? You're going to make these white children confront white violence and confront Emmett Till and you did ghost boys. Go get Jewel Parker Rhodes YA book Ghost Boys. I'm going to let that linger with you. Y'all go read it for yourself and maybe we'll have a conversation about it in there. What you think about it? Because I read it after I bought the book. And I went, you know, I'm like, you didn't really write this book. 
for the governance structure. You wrote it for the social structure. And you're going to make them talk to Emmett Till. Literally. Because there's a lot of little white girls sitting here. Huh. Okay. That's interesting enough. Let me buy it. I bought it. I read it. But the other book, I said I was going to start with the casket, but I'm going to finish this since we were talking about politics pros. That night I went up politics and pros. It was like a Thursday night. No, it couldn't have been a Thursday night because I was at law school. It was a Wednesday night. I went up. Place was packed. Every We all know the novelist and college professor, John Edgar Wideman. It was John Edgar Wideman. This is the book. The book that John Edgar Wideman wrote that I wanted him to, uh, wanted to read, read, and I wanted to hear him talk about. And, you know, he's written so much. Mostly we know him for his novels. Um, Brothers and Keepers sent for you yesterday. He's from Pittsburgh. Kind of like, he's not August Wilson. I mean, but Pittsburgh produced these cats, man. It's very interesting. Hoot Roots, a lot of different things. But this is the book. Emmett, Emmett Till's middle name, of course he signed it, but Emmett's middle name was Lewis. Emmett Till's father's name was Lewis. How much do we hear about Emmett Lewis Till's father, Lewis Till, who in 1945 was court-martialed along with some other black men, sentenced to death, executed, and buried in a colored section of a French cemetery because he was a World War II active duty soldier. The crime of those brothers, according to this lynch mob U.S. military, say he raped a white woman. They sent his personal effects back to his wife, Mamie. One of the personal effects she gave to their son, Emmett, because it was his father's. And in the social structure histories of Emmett Till, they don't talk about the haircut being the identifying piece. They say the way they were able to identify him was the ring that he had on his finger. That was his daddy's ring. John Edgar Wideman set out to write a book on Emmett Till and started doing research. And when he found Lewis Till, he got so obsessed, he tracked down the whole story because he said, this is the story of fathers and sons. This is a story of fathers and sons. Think about how the social structure has narrated Emmett Till and how we've taken it now. And it's like Emmett Till and his mama. I ain't had no daddy. And that's why he said, I'm not just writing this for Lewis Till. And all the black men that were killed because somebody said white women, they raped a white woman. What? He said, I'm writing this because he, what? He said, this is the world we live in where this man could be put to death on the accusation of sleeping with white women and his son would be lynched on the accusation of interacting with white women. There's two. Two different continents. Oh, at, at this point, let me slow down. These two sevens is on me now because I'm saying all oh, white people are the same. But I'm trying to hold that back. <laughs> no, I didn't did I because I said it. But my point is this. In the social structure, whiteness operates the same way. You can't group all white people together. As long as the police and the 
unofficial and the official police act as one? I think the answer is I can't afford not to because the blood is going to be spilled. I want to keep the blood to circulate for our memory. I don't want to spill the blood because guess what? Until there's a common body, my blood ain't going to help circulate in your body. And those of you who say all America, if we're gonna we're gonna build a better world, we must come together. Uh-huh. But what last I checked, what racism continues to prove is that we don't have the same blood type. Mm. So I can't give you a transfusion. Emmett Till's blood clearly can't go in your veins. Ask Sandra Van, uh, ask Sandra Bland, ask Freddie Gray, ask George Floyd and Brianna, uh and Brianna Taylor, ask them whether or not they got the same blood type. Clearly, then we don't have the same blood type. We keep spilling blood. You keep behaving, which means whatever story you telling yourself to keep the blood circulating is killing me. Mm. You understand? So I ain't spilling no more blood for you. And if you keep coming over here, spilling my blood, we're going to have to make this even Steven. And that, too, has an Emmett Till connection. Let's wind this. I'm just going to bring this together very quickly. This won't take long. The casket. As I said, many books. I suggest John Edgar Wideman's Emmett Till, um, John Edgar uh, Wideman's writing to save a life, the Lewis Till file. I'm not telling y'all the story of Lewis Till. You can read it for yourself. Read John Edgar Wideman's book. Um, I mentioned this recent book, and I'm glad you started with Mamie uh, Till Mobley's book, Death of Innocence, because that's where we should start. We start with the with the family, right? There are a number of books. There's a good little graphic no novel, Carlos Hill who has the Tulsa, some of the Tulsa work. Him and Dave Dodson did a book called The Murder of Emmett Till, a graphic novel. So if you're into, into comic books, you can get that. Um, uh, Simeon Wright, Emmett Till's cousin, who was in the bed that night, he told his story with Herb Boyd, the great journalist Herb Boyd, the great black journalist Herb Boyd. Simeon's story, indeed, is the name of it. But if you want, a there are a couple of good documentary, uh, documentary collections. I mentioned Remembering Emmett Till, and I'll come back to that in a second. But the, if you want to get a book that kind of gives you as much of the different stories that are put in one place, you can. Oh, by the way, uh, before I mention that, you can actually go to Ebony Magazine and read. I think it's the March 1986 uh, issue of Ebony Magazine. You can actually read the uh, the visit back to Mississippi from Clody Murdoch Larson. It's called the land land of the till murder revisited former ebony staffer returns after 30 years to report on quote the new mississippi she wrote it and at that time uh Manetta sleep was the photographer Manetta sleep went down there to mississippi with miss larson to uh see what has changed guess what oh am i getting ahead of it i'll just mention this and i'll keep coming the white boy bryant jw bryant the killer who was married to um, uh, Carolyn Bryant, who still walks the earth, who confessed a few years ago to a, an academic who wrote a book about this. Uh, the book is right over there in the other room. I read the book. Uh, it's, you know, a great scholarship. I will not mention the book, the name or the author. Why? Because he sat on it for 10 years. So I would not encourage you to get that book. And maybe one day I'll see him. Maybe one day I won't. But I'll say it to his face as soon as I say it right now. You sat on that for 10 years. You so social structure. I can see it on your forehead. She still walks the earth as far as we know. Now, she left her husband. 
who had to leave Mississippi, apparently, but at, at some point. But Miss Larson and Wright tried to interview him. Why? He was still down there, had a grocery store in the black neighborhood in 1985. And when they were asking black people, y'all know who that is, right? They was like, yeah. And so she asked the elders, why aren't y'all, this is the guy, I was in the courtroom when they got the shit. How is this guy walking the earth? <laughs> had a grocery store in the black neighborhood. Had a grocery store in the black neighborhood. Come on, y'all. Anyway, so all of that is recounted in Dave Tell's book, but y'all can read her article on your own. And you can also read, uh, this is actually a very good compilation by uh, Devery Anderson. It's called Emmett Till, The Murder That Shocked the World and Propelled the Civil Rights Movement, whether that's true or not. Julian Bond wrote the uh, introduction. There's Mississippi over there. This is actually a very good book. The book is uh, just over 500 pages. He tracked down every source that could be tracked down, living sources, oral interviews. He worked with Miss Till for years, interviewing her, sitting with her. And that actually ties, what I'm about to tell you all now, that story ties directly to the casket because by the end of this book, he, do, he does a nice little summary called the appendix. In fact, here are some of the pictures here. In fact, uh, there's Mamie Till, there's Miss Mobley right there. Mamie Till Mobley, uh, there's Keith Bochamp, there's Stanley Nelson, two of the filmmakers, direct filmmakers, um, a lot of different things in here because you know, they tried to reopen the case. And, and shout out to the great Randy Paul, young Randy Paul out of uh, Kentucky. I think he's up for electing Charles Booker running for Senate. Because Bobby Rush introduced the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill in 2019. It passed the United States Congress something like 404 to whatever's left to get you to 420 or whatever. Um, then got to the United States Senate and it was 99 nothing. They wanted unanimous consent. But one senator, young Randy Paul, put a hold on it. No. Why? It's too vague. Y'all, way y'all defining lynching, this could be just like simple assault. I guess when that white man beat his ass down there in his yard in Kentucky, he still has some flashback. But it, there's never been a lynching bill. There's been almost 200 lynching bills proposed in the United States Congress since after the end of the Civil War. None of them have ever passed, including the big push was in the 20s for the dire anti-lynching bill. Wouldn't pass. Now, it still won't pass because young Randy Paul decide. I know y'all call him Rand, but his name is Randy. Put that Y on every time y'all talk about this uh, eye doctor or whatever he is, concept Dr. Paul. <laughs> anyway, you know, he, he put a hold on it and held the line. Uh, Congressman Rush from Illinois reintroduced that legislation in January of this year. So I don't, I don't think it's, I think it was assigned to committee. I don't know where it is right now, but anyway. The uh, when she when, when he writes this appendix, uh, he puts an appendix in this book. Um, uh, Anderson does, and he starts with all he goes through the facts, the facts of the murder and all this. But he also tells the story in this book of how the casket ended up at the museum. In fact, the casket, uh, the casket ends up at the museum. Because, and that's in, actually, let me just turn to it because I want you all to hear this very clearly. Uh, let me see. Let me see if I can do it quickly. Um, 
Yeah, let me see if I if I can't find it quickly, I won't. I won't. Um, yeah, here it is. From June 2005 until July 2009, the casket that had contained the body of Emmett Till for half a century sat empty and covered in a storage shed behind the office at Burr Oak Cemetery. Why? Because remember, they exhumed him in 2005 because they reopened the case. There was a black, there was a sister in Mississippi, uh, one of the district attorneys, and there, a lot of people, multiracial crew, and they eventually closed the case. I think they found it. They found the closed case last year, I think. But they exhumed his body to do an autopsy, this kind of thing. And they reburied him in a different casket, an upgrade casket. The old casket sat at where he was buried in Burr Oak Cemetery for four years. And he says from the mid-90s until her death in 2003, Mamie Till Mobley had become increasingly dissatisfied with the condition of Burr Oak and the upkeep of Emmett's grave in particular. During my first conversation with her in December 1996, she told me that she had established an Emmett Till Memorial Fund to raise the necessary monies for removing Emmett's remains from Burr Oak and transferring them to the beautifully maintained Oak Wood Cemetery. Burr Oak apparently was in disrepair. The grave, the gravestone had been knocked down. The etching of him had fallen out of the stone. The grass was growing up. It's terrible. She said, and it flooded in there. She was just, she was just in distress. She never lived to see what happened to the casket, and he's still there. Because she was going to build a memorial. Then what happened is, though, when he asked her, well, you know, let me help. Let me, you know, because she, she asked her, who's helping you? She said, nobody now. It's just me. What? So Emmett Till is just laying there. Okay. So he tried to, you know, he tried to, you know, he tried to help her. Then as the, as the news came out, what was going on, they decided the cemetery produced a flyer in the spring 2005 that they would do groundbreaking for a new center. But when they exhumed the body for the autopsy in July 2005, there wasn't any activity for the project that had started. To make a long story short, eventually it was discovered that the people who run that grave, run that cemetery, were exhuming bodies, dumping them, use, reusing the graves, selling graves to black people, and they went to jail. And they had stole all this money. And then, so then the uproar is, oh my God, was Emmett Till one of the graves? They checked, no. And that's when they found out that the casket had been sitting on the property in a shed. It's, it's the first time they opened it, raccoon, family raccoons came out. What the hell? Did... They arranged to have that casket refurbished. And the family donated it, loaned it long-term loan to the national, what became the National Museum for African-American History and Culture. This book came out just before the museum opened. And so when you go, when you come here to Washington and you go down the basement to the first floor and you come up, you're going to come around and it's going to be, there's a little room where the casket of Emmett Till is. And I, and I, we've talked about this before, but I'll mention it right quick and as we, we kind of wind to the end on Emmett Till. When you walk in that room, First of all, there are no photographs allowed. And I wrote about this, actually. I wrote about it for, um, uh, I think it was maybe uh, Diverse Magazine, just a little one-pager. And I, I wrote an article for Ebony and one for Diverse Magazine on the opening of the museum. And what I said is museums, of course, are places that house things that people stole from other people. The case of the National Museum for African-American History and Culture is different. This is a place where people have 
collected things that people willingly gave for safekeeping. And I said, no museum can ever tell a story because there are many different stories. I, I said, however, when you go into the National Museum for African-American History and Culture, and we know the founding director of that museum, Lonnie Bunch, is now the executive director. He's the director of all the Smithsonian's. Whenever I think of the museum, I think of my very good friend, Kinshasa Conwell, who is the deputy director, who is one of our greatest culture keepers in the area, of, particularly of art history, but culture generally, just a brilliant sister. And I just love the sister's energy, her intellect, very powerful. She's an artist. She and her husband, Houston Conwell, both Howard University graduates, they met there. Uh, his One of his specialties was, was cosmograms. When you go to Schomburg, the cosmogram in the floor under which the ashes of uh, Langston Hughes are buried, that's Houston Conwell. When you go to the um, New York African burial ground, that beautiful cosmogram that takes up the whole uh, best, uh, center of the main uh, entrance at the, uh, the floor there in the federal building, that's Houston Conwell. I mean, just brilliant work. And his wife, Kinshasa, he's an ancestor now. Just a brilliant sister. Studio Museum of, Har uh, of, of, of Harlem came down here. Now, Deputy Director of the National Museum for African American History and Culture. Long career on stuff. HBCU art. I mean, she does. she's done so many catalogs. Look her up. C-O-N-W-I-L-L. -L, Kinshasa. Like uh, Zaire. Um, the city. She told me when they got that casket, she told me the provenance of the cloth, the fabric that's underneath the casket, the black cloth. You know, when you have caskets sitting on like a carafe or whatever we call the, 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 the cloth that hangs down. She said that was hand sewn by a sister who's one of the curators. They said, because this is a sacred thing we're about to do. And when you go in that museum, what I wrote is when you collect things, people want to narrate a story. But the beauty of that museum for me as I wrote, it's when you go in, for me, the beauty is listening to the people talk. And now reading Humpate Ba, it reminds me, why? Because every object in there sparks a conversation. When you listen to black people, old black folk being pushed in wheelchairs, children walking alongside them, generations of people, they stop in front of a, a, a statue of Serena Williams or uh, the cleats of Wilma Rudolph from my uh, school, Tennessee State, or you come around and you walk and you go into mock baseball stadium where they're talking about the Negro Leagues, or you see um, um, Rosa Parks addressed by her, or you see the stone fragments of the stained glass from 16th Street Baptist Church, or you see, and you see black people, wow, this reminds me of so-and-so. Wow, this reminds me of so-and-so. Or you go to the top floor and you hear the music playing and you see Celia Cruz's dresses, or you see the door that was in Philadelphia International, the sound of Philadelphia, and you hear black people talking. Yeah, man, this reminds me. Man, when we used to have parties, there is what Hampate Ba is talking about. Here's the blood. That's the beauty of that museum. It isn't the objects, it's the stories that people almost, they almost come out of them as they're engaged in these objects. But I said, the spiritual center of that place. Oh, by the way, that's in spite of the attempt to define black people for the social structure. This is the journey of black people and how we have enriched America. Turn that down, please, or, or turn it up. I don't care, why? Because I'm not listening to you. I'm listening to these people. They're not talking about, see, this is why I love being an American. When I see this, it makes me just so happy that we let, that ain't how we talk. That's how y'all be wanting us to talk, which is why that's why the translators talk to y'all like that on these documentaries. But if you want to hear black people 
well, you ain't gonna hear black people because we're gonna be like them old heads that was talking to Lucy Turner. We, I mean, uh, talking to uh, Miss Miss Lucy Turner. We ain't gonna talk to you anyway. This is about as close as you're gonna get. So please subscribe to Narrative so you can have a conversation. This is about as close as you're gonna get. But understand that there will be no more bloodshed for your uh, for your benefit. We're gonna shed blood. It's gonna be even, Steven, and maybe we we'll all get the same blood type when the blood runs together. But until then, no more sacrifice. This this because because this democracy sacrifices of a democracy that's a fantasy you made up in your own mind. Anyway, so when you go to the casket, let me tell y'all, and some of y'all know what I'm talking about. The security guards, it's black security guards, of course, work all through the museums, work all through all the Smithsonian's. Really, I know a lot of them cats because I go down there a lot. You know, before the before the epi, uh, pandemic, when you get to that corner, I swear they turn into church ushers. I've never seen anything like this in my life. You go in the corner, it's a little room, and they got a little like a like a vestibule, like a foyer room with the story. You see Miss Miss Till uh on Miss Mobley on the screen talking. They've got pictures, they got Rosa Parks in them talking. And then you and then the next room is where the casket is. In the room, you hear music. Behind the casket is a mural, which is a blown-up photograph of the day of that funeral. So you see the church and you hear. And if you know who you listen to, you know who it is in a split second. If you don't, it doesn't matter because whether you know her or not, her voice moves through you like a force. It's Mahalia Jackson. And you hear it's funny. It's like, before you go in, before you can come into that ante room, A-N-T-E, the guards are like, no photographs. And please be respectful no loud voices now i'm saying maybe they gave y'all a script but they stand up like this no loud voice, and they it's like ushers you know what i'm saying and it's like what then you get in there and it's almost like instinctive you see the guess the people's got it they take it off there's a little bench in front of the casket there's the casket a little railing where you can look over and then there's a little bench every time i go in there I sit on that little bench and just sit there. I might sit there for 10 minutes, not long, out of respect, because you got to keep it moving. But I'm just sitting there to watch the people. And it's interesting to watch. Black people come in there. If the kids are like, ah, you know what? I was wondering, hold on. And they get quiet. They don't even have to be told. You are going, it's like you're going to the funeral. And the energy that comes through, and I and I wrote this in in, in an article, I said. This is the spirit center of this building. Emmett Till didn't ask to be a martyr, but this is the spirit sense of that building. It really is something. So let's let's go through this quick. This won't take but a second. We know what happened. We know from the timeline that in the summer of 1955, uh, Mamie Till had to be convinced to let her son go back to where she was from. So she relented. Okay, I let him go down there. Told him, be careful. Apparently, Emmett Till had had several run-ins with white folk in money and around where his great-uncle uh, lived. And his great-uncle came and got him and brought him down there because that's what they did. They took kids back, you know, Mississippi, go back south, spend for the summertime. And he's supposed to stay down there, according to the report, says till Labor Day. But he's, he's going to be down there. And then the 24th of August, 
apparently some of the kids, some of the neighborhood black kids had, had first of all, they were saying, yeah, be careful in money. Money was the little town. You got to be careful up there because, you know, interracial contact is, is, is a challenging thing under, under the best circumstances. But some of the young people were around and it's a lot of mythology around. It's a lot of different stories, which is why I like this book by Anderson, because what he says is, and in fact, he says this, and, and he and Tell, Dave Tell both say this. Some of this stuff will never be known. And that's why what Hampate Ba says is so important. If you're looking for what actually happened, you probably just need to slow your roll and relax. Because some stories can never be recovered completely in terms of absolute historical accuracy and some events that are absolutely historically accurate are going to have different interpretations based on who is experiencing them. That's why when our sister Chimamanda Adichie says that there's a, there's, a, there's a danger of a single story, one of the reasons is that it could be the same thing that happened, but everybody got different uh, perspectives. And trust me, the social structure perspective ain't going to be the governance structure perspective. So when these young cats is out there, the best that they can determine from listening to everyone Everyone, and in fact, Tell says that the historians often come up with stuff, and then what they what he says is, I don't make a distinction between history and memory like that because the historians say when they say, well, this isn't accurate, he says it's been my experience in this story. It gets closer to the memory of the people who were there when they say, well, this was yeah, uh huh, uh huh, because the first thing is y'all don't trust black people. I'm sorry, that's not true. The first thing, we don't trust you with good reason. The second reason is you don't trust us with no reason, but that's okay. Well, sometimes good reasons because we ain't going to tell you everything. I mean, it's pretty clear by best evidence and putting everything together and everybody's relate that he whistled. Now, did he whistle at that white woman? Did it happen after he came out of the little place? Because what they said was, it's a, it's a white girl in there. Because apparently they had been talking about girls, teenage boys talking about girls. Nah, that doesn't seem likely. Anyway, and he'd been in Chicago. So he got a picture of a white girl. See, that's my girlfriend. That ain't your girlfriend. Now, this dude from Chicago, he down here with these country boys that ain't allowed to look at white women. And he's saying, that's my girlfriend. In other words, he's down there showing me, man, ain't nobody, ain't nobody messing with a white girlfriend. This, this ain't your white girlfriend. Yeah, it's my white girlfriend. Hey, what? So did he whistle on the porch? Because his cousin said he had a stutter and he was just, that's how he slowed down. Nah, nah, he whistled. But that ain't even the point. This is the 24th of August. Four days later, they show up at Moe's Wright's little place, a little place on this sharecropper's farm. But Moe's Wright was a sharecropper, but he wasn't a sharecropper as his life. That was his job and the social structure. The man was a minister, Moses Wright. And by all accounts, the people who was in his church, the people who knew him, the black people, they said this was an eloquent dude. There he is. Look at him with the, look at him with the Bible, Professor Hunter. Look at that man right there. Moses Wright, the Reverend Moses Wright. So y'all turn on documentaries, Moses Wright, a sharecropper. Now, give him that picture right there. <laughs> My goodness, he had a Bible. Hmm, could he read? Y'all had this man, like he was just somewhere with his shirt off and didn't know nothing about nothing. So y'all y'all leave black people alone. Just, just let, oh, that's beautiful. Moses Wright. Yes, so he, he's born in 1892. So what happened was he said it when Roy Bryant and J.W. Milan 
who was his half brother apparently, came in there looking for the boy that did all that talk the other day. They gonna kill. They came there to kill Emmett Till. Of course they did. Of course they did. However, so they went and they did. You know, we we know that story, right? They pulled him out. They took him. Now, what happens next? Gets a little fuzzy. Why is it fuzzy? Because at the end of the day, what we know is that there were witnesses. They, we know that there were witnesses. What we don't know is how many people participated in it. This is where it gets really crazy. Because what happened was they take him, they kill him, they, they take him to a, 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 a barn, they beat him up, they killed him, beat his face in, he was shot in the head. They tied a, the fan of a cotton gin, one of those cotton gins used for getting the seeds out of cotton. They tied it to him and dropped him, Tyran's neck, dropped him in the Tallahatchie River. And somebody out fishing found him a few days later because they reported him missing and they started looking for him. This fisherman came and said, I saw this body with his feet sticking, his feet sticking up and they found him and they fished him out the Tallahatchie River. Now that was 1955. Nine years later, of course, uh, you had the murders of Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, and the brother from Mississippi, James Cheney. Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney, as they always talk about, civil rights workers, native Mississippian James Cheney, who they castrated as they killed him. They didn't do that to Schwerner and Goodman, these uh, these sex-obsessed white nationalist clan, clan, clansmen in, 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 in Mississippi. Um, you, the United States versus Price is the is the case. They they actually eventually did on federal charges, civil rights violations, get convicted. Nobody ever spent a day in punishment for the killing of Emmett Till, even though they know them two was involved and they may have been more involved. But I'll never forget the 50th anniversary of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It was my first time getting a chance. The, the Jones brothers, Marshall Jones, wrote the lyrics to this. They wrote it about the um, the killing of Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney. But it was a song that spoke to the fact that there have been so many black people killed in Mississippi. It was called In the Mississippi River. And getting a chance to listen to them perform that song and then getting a chance to be with them, just sitting around asking them about what was y'all going to Because this is the crew that also wrote the Ballad of Mega Evers. I mean, just because Mega Evers helped. I will talk about that in a second. I'm looking at the clock. We're going to wind this up in a second. Um. But that in the Mississippi River, I, 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 I encourage you all to find that there was a double, I say double album, and it was, but also CDs, and that's probably digital. Uh, the Smithsonian uh, curated these songs from the Civil Rights Movement. Many of them are from the SNCC singers that became the Harambe singers. Uh, one link to the Harambe singers, the SNCC singers, is the sister Bernice Johnson Reagan, who also worked at the Smithsonian. Doctor Reagan, Bernice Johnson Reagan. Uh, you know her, probably know her daughter, Toshi, musician, culture worker. Um, the Smithsonian uh, issued two, uh, two, two albums set. And one of the songs on there is the In the Mississippi River. And I'll never forget being with those elders and listening to them talk about how they came up with that song. Because what they said is what we want y'all to understand is y'all came out here looking for these white workers. And that's when you started finding all these other bodies. So when you hear it, it's a very... Um, they, they're singing together and it's like 
in the Mississippi River. Then you hear the, the sister's voice. Lord, 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 in the Mississippi River. Lord, 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 in the Mississippi River. Then they get into it. Well, you can count them one by one. It could be your son. Count them two by two. It could be me or you. Count them three by three. Do you want? No. Count them three by three. Do you want to see? Count them four by four. And uh, Chuck Neblett, you sings this part now. I saw them in Selma just before COVID. You know. Well, you can count them five by five with their hands tied. Count them six by six with their feet tied. Count them seven by holes throughout their body. Well, Mississippi River showing heaven like Schwerner. Count them eight by eight and good men thrown in because of hate and Cheney count them ten by ten and we wonder when the right will win in the river count them twelve by in the Yazoo River count them and in the Tallahatchie River count I mean, it is the most moving. This, these were, and these were young people. They're, they're literally crafting. This is movement and memory. That category we have. How do we remember? It's also cultural meaning making. How do we make meaning in that moment? They're used to singing upbeat songs, and they're, and they're making marching songs. When they got to those songs at Mississippi, that in the Mississippi River. When they, they start naming the rivers in the Yazoo River, and then they go up, and in the Tallahatchie River, that's Emmett Till. And in the Tallahatchie River, they pulled Emmett Till out the Tallahatchie River, took him back to that black funeral home. His body was identified. And then they have the trial in September. Oh, oh, this is the thing that's crazy. This is what I love about black people in this because remember jenny mosby jenny mobley who is uh mamie till's husband of 43 years passed away in 2000 that was the brother his name was jenny g with a g not a j g-e-n-n-i-e mobley you know all these are stories in the governance structure who we are to each other when they had the trial they knew these white boys wasn't gonna get no time and of course in the social structure they tell a story and they went and they had the trial and uh, they were acquitted in less than an hour. It would have been less than an hour, but they waited seven minutes because they wanted cold Coca-Cola's in the jury room. So it would have been less than an hour. Okay, that's the social structure. Here's the governance structure. And you all have to go read for yourselves because I'm going to keep this very short. Mamie Till came down for the trial. She can't stay in town. Mamie Till also um the black reporters, the black press sent a whole crew, including Clody Larson. Clody Larson, Simeon Booker for Ebony Magazine, and the other black reporters who are covering the case in the courtroom, the white racist sheriff who 
uh, left as sheriff that same year and then wanted to run for another office, but his wife told him, you can't run for all. He's a pure racist. In fact, Clody Larson tells the story in her Ebony articles, including that one from 1986. She said, I remember we walked up the courthouse, the sheriff was standing there and he was like, hello, N-words. And we knew this shit right here is about to be a mess because, and then when he went in, remember last week we talked about uh, Clarence LeVon Franklin? C.L. Franklin, if y'all remember, the, the, the only the third black congressman to serve in the United States Congress ever in terms of uh, House of Representatives. No, no, no. Third black congressman in the 20th century, I guess it was, was a guy who came out of a family undertaker's business people out of Detroit named Charles Diggs. C.L. Franklin and them raised money and they sent Diggs to the to the trial of uh, Emmett Till's killers. And Clody uh, uh, Larson tells, writes the story that when, when he came in, the same sheriff and the bailiff in them was like, this N-word say he a congressman. And she said, they was like, ain't no such thing. In fact, one of the law enforcement guys said, it ain't right and it ain't legal. <laughs> it ain't legal for no Negro congressman. And I'm using Negro instead of, in fact, we could use the Southern gloss on the N-word, Negra. It ain't Negro congressman. They finally figured out, oh, wait, no, nah, he's from Michigan. He's from, okay, well, maybe up north. Is they let him sit at the same card table they had the black press at. <laughs> they had a card table for the black press. So Lawson, them sitting. they knew they couldn't stay in town. They stayed at the house of a brother who we've mentioned before, Theodore Roosevelt Mason Howard. T.R.M. Howard was the surgeon at the hospital started by the Knights and Daughters of Tabor in Mound Bayou, Mississippi. We had a whole conversation about Mound Bayou. Remember, we talked about that. We went back to Reconstruction, then after, that's the all-black town. Black people run everything. And what Lawson said, what uh, Simeon Booker and them said, what Mamie Till Mobley said, because she stayed there too, was that we were safe at TRM Howard's house, Dr. Howard's house. Why? Because he had arsenal in there. Come on, white boys. Come to me. Hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Will there be bloodshed, Professor Hunter? Not at TRM Law, not our TRM Howard's house unless the blood is going to be out there. Because if you white boys even look over here. And then she tells the other stories. And I'm going to end with this. These are just teasers for you to go out and get the rest of this story. Because if you never heard of Clody Lawson, as you know right now, Clody Larson said, we went to see Reverend Wright. And she calls him Reverend Wright. We went to see Reverend Wright. Because remember, he testifies at the trial. The picture that um, Ernest Withers, the, the photographer, took of the man they call Moses Wright, Moses Wright, Reverend Moses Wright, pointing at them white boys when he was asked on the stand. Do you see the two men that came to your house and took your nephew? Darhi. I tell my students, there are five words. There he is. There he is. Beautiful. There it is right there. Moses Wright. Darhi. Got his shirt on, white shirt, got his tie. He had to leave Mississippi. He moved to Illinois where he worked the rest of his life as a custodian and restaurants, bars, um, 
he was offered a job in Albany, New York, because he had gone around speaking, you know, talking about what happened, this kind of thing. But he refused. I ain't going up there. It's cold enough over here near in Chicago area. And he stayed there. Rest of the he had to leave Mississippi, just like Rosa and Raymond Parks had to leave Alabama and go to Detroit. I mean, you know, this kind of thing. He had testified against these crackers in open court. Darhi. And I tell my students all the time, there are five words that enter this social structure from the governance structure of black people from Mississippians who live within a stone's throw of each other that I think should be inscribed in our minds and our memories all the time. Three of them is when Fannie Lou Hamer, Rueville, Sunflower County, Mississippi, with her hands clasped, stood there, uh, sat there at the Credentials Committee in 1964 in Atlantic City at the Democratic National Convention and say, I question America. Then three, and my man Moses Wright, Darhi. <laughs> in other words, I ain't scared of you. The hell are you gonna do? And when Clody Larson said, we went up on the porch and as we sitting there talking to Reverend Wright, a car full of white boys came down the street and they slowed down in front of the house and we looked at them eye to eye and our eyes locked and Clody Larson writes that I could see in their eyes the cold, dispassionate, these are killers. And then they sped off. And we asked Reverend Wright, is it hunting season? <laughs> said Moses Wright said, no, unless they're hunting us. Amen. Mm. And then they went on and spent the night and spent several nights with Reverend uh, Dr. Howard safe in Mount Bayou. The verdict comes down. The verdict is over. But there were some other people who could have testified. And here's the genius of it. TRM Howard and several of his junior protégés and colleagues Aaron Henry, who ended up running and winning elective office, who helped the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. When you hear Bob Moses and Charlie Cobb and them talk about, or um, or Dory Ladner talk about uh, Aaron Henry, a giant. Um, a young brother who TRM Howard hired to sell insurance for him in Mount Bayou, who went on to be the state director of the NLACP, a man named Megger Wiley Evers. TRM Howard himself. These cats decided they going to go find witnesses. Witnesses to what? Witnesses to the murder of Emmett Till. What you mean? What you going to interview people? <laughs> you have to, you can't you can't make this up. Aaron Henry Aaron Henry changed his clothes, put on sharecropper clothes. He said I got the shirt and I put my and I went out in the cotton fields and started asking questions. Little by little, TRM Howard, Aaron Henry, and their comrades got the testimony. And what testimony did they get? Two brothers said, I, I heard them. I was, I heard them in the shed. I heard them beating that boy. I heard him crying, begging for his life. Then I just heard the moans. Then I hear nothing no more. Two cats were field hands who they made get in the truck in the back with him so he wouldn't jump out. Ain't none of them testified. They locked those two brothers up in an adjoining county so they couldn't come and testify. And after they got acquitted, they sold their story to this dude named William Huey Bradford who shows up in Eyes on the Prize. If you see the document, that's the white boy saying, you know, uh, they say Emmett Till didn't beg for his life. He was defiant. He, he he wouldn't mumble. And so one of the reasons why they said they killed him because he wouldn't recant is a 14-year-old boy 
You done beat the hell out of him. He's a human being. And so one of the ways that Emmett Till enters the mythology of the social structure, and we, because we don't necessarily go back and do our work, now we will, I hope y'all will, we embrace that, is that he didn't say nothing. He was defiant to the end. What Dave Till writes in, the, in Remembering Emmett Till, he says, this thing has become a cottage industry in Mississippi in the very place they killed him. First of all, they start the trial at the store. The store ain't no, you didn't break no law. Yes, the law you broke was interacting with white women. That's the same law you break today. How you gonna start this trial at the store? You start the trial at Moses Wright's house. Think about that. Why y'all start this trial? And guess what? The first state historical marker in Mississippi, marker number one in the state of Mississippi, established to tell the story of Mississippi. Y'all know where marker number one is? Bryant's grocery store. But this is not all right because the criminals Emmett Till. Just, just, just linger on that for a minute. Social structure. This boy was killed. Why don't y'all put the marker in front of Moe's right house? Oh no, they, they, they knocked that down years ago. It's gone. What about the marker where you got Emmett Till? Oh no, they shoot that up every few years. But what about the marker in front of Brian's grocery store? Yeah, that's we'll start it there. What, what Tell T E L L? What he writes is. This memory is constantly contested. It's not about the facts. It's about how you view it. It's about how that makes the blood circulate through your body. And if your body is trying to keep this criminal enterprise together, then you tell the story in a way that makes you, yes, his crime. And even say, and Julian Bond, you hear that in the Eyes of the Press. You know, his crime was talking to white women. And in Malcolm X, in the uh, when he writes an autobiography, you see it in the movie, Spike Lee's movie. Our crime wasn't breaking and entering. Our crime was sleeping with white women. That ain't no damn crime at least not one punchable by law. In other words, you, you don't go to jail unless you framed it in your mind that whiteness is the standard by which we will interpret even memory. No, hell no. And so they find these brothers and it's it's, uh, it's, it's really remarkable stories all behind that. But, um, but, but um, when she comes back 30 years later, Larson, she says, I want to talk to this white man. I want to talk to Roy Bryant. And they like, you what? You, guess who takes her to see Roy Bryant? A dude named Cleveland McDonald. Cleve McDonald was the first, was one of the first two black people to go to the University of Mississippi and eventually was going to law school. Y'all know the name James Meredith. James Meredith was the black man that had all the documentaries. Cleve McDonald was the second one. He was with Meredith. Meredith didn't finish and neither did McDonald. McDonald didn't finish because these white boys saying they're going to kill anybody to enlist in Ole Miss in 1957. And, you know, they tore up the damn campus. Uh, former Senator Trent Lott was a student at University of Mississippi, uh, on a cheerleader on the cheerleading squad. You know, he a racist right along with him, redneck down there, Ross uh, Barnett, the governor, all them down there, you know, uh, racist. My man McDonald said, I'm getting a gun. He got a gun. They put... Cleve McDonald, uh, Mc, not McDonald, McDowell. They put, damn, it sound like coming to America, not McDonald, McDowell's. But anyway, this is the real, actual Cleve McDowell. Mr. McDowell got put out of Ole Miss for concealing a weapon, conceal carry. The very thing they want to legalize everywhere now, they put him out of Ole Miss. He said, I got this gun because y'all can't protect me. So he eventually finished law school at Texas Southern 
University School of Law and came back to Mississippi, practiced law until 2007 when he was murdered, that murder still unsolved. But it was Cleveland McDonald, the black man who took, uh, took Slauson to see Roy Bryant, who had sold his story with his brother, with his half brother, sold his story to Look Magazine and the white boy bragging about what they did to Emmett Till and then saying, hey, you know, we had to kill him because he was not, he was too defiant. But at the end of the day, he told these black reporters, no, nah, I don't want to talk to y'all. I'm not talking to y'all. And she was like, I cannot believe 1985, you got a, you still got a grocery store and you're in the same damn neighborhood and it's a black community and ain't nobody done nothing to you. Even the sheriff, the one that said, hello, Negroes. Even as sheriff, his wife told him, you, you shouldn't run for sheriff anymore because he was sitting in his car one day and somebody shot at him and damn, and almost killed him. So in terms of bloodshed, it's always some cats willing to, 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 to do some other stuff. But that, that, those are some of the um, some of the stories around um, Emmett Till. And we've never forgotten him in the governance structure. Maybe, maybe this is, I mean, I'll, stop, I'll stop here. We've never forgotten Emmett Till in the, in the governance structure. But after the murder of Trayvon Martin, I think what happened was you see black folk go back and and pick up Emmett Till in a way that brings him forward, but also brings forward the challenge for us, which is not to remember the killing of Emmett Till in a social structure framework, not to create a narrative where there weren't black people surrounding that family. There weren't black communities in Mississippi. This isn't about commemoration. This isn't about um, white profit or black profit because what Tell writes in his book is now the embrace of Emmett Till has come with cottage industries. He said, there's one little town where there are 18 markers associated with Emmett Till in that little town and that the poverty is so thick you can cut it with a knife in the Mississippi Delta. Nothing has changed and the poverty is so entrenched and the inequality is so entrenched that even as now you can eat where you want, you can shop where you want. Yeah, but look at the inequality that some of the commemoration stuff has become business. So even the selling of death, the same thing that we hear in the streets of Ferguson with the critiques of Black Lives Matter and the folk who come in, what they call them? I forget what they call them. They got a, they got a term for them, not activists, but it's like celebrity kind of thing. This profiting off black death from Emmett Till forward, you see this notion of this iconography of black death. We've got to fight against that by remembering that we suffer, we rise, we organize, we work together as community. And at the end of the day, we can't turn our pain into a commodity. Something's got to change. And it doesn't mean the individual bank accounts of people who argue, argue, argue till they get a little grant or get a little profile. No. No. As Rosa Parks said, as Julian Bond said, as um, as um, Dory Ladner said, as so many others say, when Emmett Till was killed, we were around the same age as him. And that, and for Ms. Parks, you know, she has said, and, you know, there's been some dispute as to whether she always said it or not, but that's not the point. Clearly from 1955, the year after Brown versus Board of Education, the year of Brown II, the year be 
two years before the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which was the first federal civil rights legislation since Reconstruction. And uh, a lot of scholars would argue that the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which is the one that predates the Civil Rights Act of 1964, was in part pushed through because of the rising challenge that was presented by the response from our communities to the killing of Emmett Till. All of that stuff has to be separated out, has to be separated out from the idea that we live and our blood is spilled for sacrifice to this abstract notion of America. And that's never been the case. So this that's us on Black August. We end the last we end with the last week of Black August with Emmett Till week. And maybe next week, um exclusively in Nubia, because I think we need to have this conversation. I've been contemplating it, reading George Jackson. And again, I'm reading it so slow. Mm. But you know, how you know everything, you know, the, the fear that's built in and baked in based on, you know, you do too much, you know, then you know you're a target, and then they have a way of dealing with you if you're gonna upset the system. Anyway, well, let's talk about it uh, later. And let me just say thank you. Thank you for. Um, no, no, thank you. This is. Oh. This. Yeah, no, it, it is a lot. I mean, when when I looked at the date on the map and then you just told me George Jackson uh, was murdered, killed oh, on, on last last week when we were talking about him. That you brought him up. I'm just like, none of this is a coincidence or by accident. I know that we're in the midst of something really um, amazing and great and i'm i'm grateful that uh we're doing this together so. So somebody will put in the chat too like that, that today is also the anniversary of the march on washington 1963. wow and that's and that's cool and we're glad i have a dream i mean read clarence jones who helped who write him write so, the speech they, they put that in Fortnite. um so you video game folk out there who are playing oh. Fortnite, yeah they have martin luther king i have a dream and it looks a hot biscuity mess of course that's social structure mess but, but okay. we, this is a fighting game. This is a fighting game built. It's, you know, it's a fighting game. No question. But, but we must we must always remember that also it's very interesting. Emmett Till doesn't show up in Martin Luther King's address in 1963 in Washington. However, in his first recorded version of the I Have a Dream speech, which takes place in Detroit, C.L. Franklin is there. So when we talking about last week. With Mahalia Jackson behind him. No, well, that no, that no, no, that actually, that of course was in Washington because we okay. know that she's the she's the reason he said I have a dream. About the dream. That's right, that's right. Clarence Jones writes about it. He says he was finished, and like any good preacher, he's trying to get the crowd together. And like any good person who's a church lady, like Mahalia Jackson, she's behind and said, "Tell him about the dream, Martin," because she could tell you hadn't sold it yet. It was Mahalia Jackson. That's exactly right. But she wasn't there a couple of weeks before in Detroit when he gave virtually the same speech without that turn. You hear it. Except in that speech in Detroit, before that audience that had raised money through C.L. Franklin and others to send Charles Diggs, Martin Luther King names Emmett Till. Go back and listen to the speech. It's 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 almost the same speech he gives in Washington on on August 28, 1963. Except in the previous, and you can you can find the recording because again it was on Barry Gordy's one of his labels. Barry Gordy had an imprint where he would they would publish speeches. Listen. He mentioned he, he name checks Emmett Till in that Martin Luther King does. So just just so y'all know. And on that note, um, let me just say thank you. Rest in power. We we rest on I the shoulders of the ancestors, including Emmett Till. I uh, say, uh, Mr. Jackson, George Jackson, and I just I um, grateful that uh, we're doing this together. I, I love you. I, I love, love you too. I love you too. Oh, this is wow. This is it, y'all. This is what we do. 
We're doing it. I love we've jailbroken the black. Look, the students are already saying, if I'm gonna be in Zoom, why am I paying room and board? We joke, we're jailbreaking the black university, y'all. We we see we saw this a year and a half ago. We knew where it was going. <laughs> Didn't know exactly. So um now we're gonna continue for the people yeah. who are right now locked. So we just did a test run in Nubia. Because I didn't know. Uh, thank you, Carl. Let me bring your Reyes in because he's smiling. Uh, we, What's hey, up, hey, hey, hey. Uh, and we, it, we were like um, the lady that you know is helping us put all of the stuff. She said she she got, gave us the code. So I was like, let me see because we, you know, we have our standing meeting when we're not live. And I was like, let's just, you know, we usually do it live. We tape live anyway. Yeah. I was like, let's just go live in Nubia. Let's see if it works. And I'm looking at it on the app as we are. So I'm multitasking, looking at it on the on the desktop. Looks beautiful, just like the other platform. Oh, yeah. So I'm imagining like during the week, like when stuff comes up, like yesterday with the um Supreme Court. Uh, ah, really, yes. We could just jump on this wherever you are. If you're having coffee in DC, I'll send you the link. We go live in Nubia. We'll do it. We can do that now, and we don't have to worry about all the little algorithms. And just Nubians, Nubians, you <laughs> Nubians, just be ready yes. uh, because you know we may not let you know like today. So oh, all of those yes. in there now, they didn't know this was going to happen. Uh, we just did it. We didn't know we didn't know if it was going to work. And so <laughs> I dropped the link, so Uraeus, uh came in. He, hey, Uraeus. Hey, guys, always up. Uh, oh, Good to see you, man. Good to see you too. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. This is uh, it worked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just really exciting to see what's going on in Nubia, and just the 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 best is yet to come. I mean, that's, I'm almost at a loss of words. Just the knowledge, the wisdom, the science that's being dropped is just it's like a breath of fresh air every time you open up the app. It's beautiful. That's oh, what I'm about. Thank you, Bobby. You you getting it done, man. He's a little mad because he was the the number one user in Nubia. And then, oh no! Well, I didn't know. You know, I'm super competitive, so <laughs> I think he's been trying because he's been posting a lot. I'm looking. I'm fine. I see you, Urias. I see you. <laughs> I, dropped, I dropped it. I'm like number four or five now, but that's oh, a good thing. That means oh, taking over. Right. So, Doctor Carr, we got to get you in. Um, I'm looking. I, I just came. I'm looking now. I move. I moved to narrative. Let me see over here. I got the app on my phone. So everybody that's in, um, if you have a, a narrative username and password, you just go to your app store and download Nubia with a K and then put your username and password in and it should work. And if it doesn't just, you know, hit that button to say, you know, please let me in um, and folk will let you in. So um, that's that. Uh, by Urias and Urias is back in school too. He's teaching. Oh, brother. Yeah, we all teaching. So We're all in the thing, man. This is whoo. It's a different yes. world, though, ain't it, brother? Yes, sir. It's yes, a different sir. world. Everything's changing now. <laughs> yeah. Uh oh. Now you now you stuck. So I'm gonna oh, and let me bring in Brian because uh I have to run and do my actual other live. Yeah, show. You, got, you got yeah, you gotta go do the thing. So we right, gonna so let me just bring this brother in because I, I dropped the link because I wanted to test it in, in the app. So I dropped the link to see if people could come in. Uh and Brian. Uh, wanted to come in. Hi, Brian. Un hey, what's going on, Baba? Unmute. Unmute. Come on. Come on, Brian. Yeah, we're here. We here. All right, there we go. Yeah, sorry hey. about that. It's a different delay. Ah, uh, oh, how are you, Baba? It's a delay. All right. Can you hear it? Uh, so, so that's so we so Urias wasn't delayed. Brian, you okay? Fine, fine. I am unmuted, but the uh, the live has a delay. 
All right, so pay attention to the to this. We good, uh, we good. All right. So how are you? You you want to ask a question quickly? How you doing, man? Uh, I'm just an engineer at Toyota right now. I'm in the lab. Yes, 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 yes. Well, um, you are you from Atlanta? So this is gonna be interesting. If if there's a delay, because your race didn't have a delay, but there's a delay. Yes, with uh, my, my, my grandmother is from Griffin, Georgia. Griffin. My grandma's from Griffin, Georgia. She used to tell me all the time about these small towns that would be around. She would go visit where, um. They will have different towns with different crops. So I was just wondering, uh, where what happened to all these small towns? She just a little bit outside of Atlanta, so there was a lot of black people down there. But like there was just maybe there was no support, or was there like a political thing that was going on? Like how, how did these small towns disappear where she would go? Like she went to school in the woods, and there was hundreds of people at the school. So like how did these stuff just kind of fall through the cracks? That's a good question. Um, I would say very quickly. Um, it is, um, it's basically economics. In other words, people move where the jobs are. And those little towns often were self-sustaining or they were part of networks that, you know, business people now will call a supply chain. So if you're growing crops that are going to be harvested and then sold locally or moved, um, you know, kind of regionally, then you can sustain small towns like that. However, because most of it's tied to agriculture, but as jobs dried up, agribusiness comes in or whatever economic conditions change, people left those little towns and went to the city. That's that's why a lot of them shrunk or even disappeared. However, many of them are still there. Your, that hometown, Griffin, Griffin, Georgia, I knew a sister, I went to school sister, Wyonia Tyus, who is from, uh, well, no, Caratina Tyus, Caratina Tyus. Her, we went to school together. Her auntie, Wyomia, was, of course, one of the great Olympians. Uh, Griffin, Georgia, as you know, as your grandmother knows, of course, um, is the home of Wyoming Atias, who was one of Wilma Rudolph's um, uh, teammates in the Tiger Bells, Tennessee State Tiger Bells. Griffin has a long history. I mean, I've had students over the years from Griffin, Georgia. So I know Griffin is still there. But Griffin is not even a small town by the standard of some of these little towns. It's got a hundred, couple hundred, three, four hundred people, maybe. And even Mount Bayou, where TRM Howard was, which is a is a is a it was a it was a town that came out of the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction that was actually founded by some of the Africans who had been enslaved, the children of the Africans who had been enslaved on Jefferson Davis's brother Benjamin Davis's plantation hurricane in Mississippi, which is really it's, it's Mount Bayou has an incredible uh, history. But when you look at um, uh, Madam C.J. Walker and others. You know, you see these they, them coming out of these independent black towns. And of course, Professor Hunter, we've had this conversation uh, before in detail about the black towns of Oklahoma, of Kansas, Nicodemus, Kansas. Um, when we talk about Black Wall Street in Tulsa, we have to understand that those are connected to the black towns of Oklahoma, the, the, the maroon spirit that is really out there. And so a lot of those towns still exist. Many of them don't. But the reason that they began to shrink or disappear is that people follow the jobs. Mm. You got to be able to earn a living. And so that has more to do with the political economy of the country. And so we understand that that's not only a black thing, although it is uniquely black in terms of how we experienced it, suffered it, dealt with it. However, you see that particularly now 
in the so-called uh, heartland of the United States, the Rust Belt and all these little towns, you know, because a lot of times to rescue those towns uh, or because it was really cheap labor, it was good business to do, but it had the consequence of doing that. Uh, these white industrialists put their factories. Western Pennsylvania is filthy with those kind of little towns because they all worked in the mines or they all worked in the mills. Ken Griffey, Ken Griffey Sr., his, his Ken Griffey Jr.'s father, who's also a star baseball player, you start talking about them Western Pennsylvania towns, Aliquippa, and all them, I mean, you know, Joe Namath came out of, I mean, all them towns around Pittsburgh. <laughs> Those little towns are gone because the factory's gone. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's really the answer is economics. Well, thank you, Brian, for helping us test out the uh, Q&A. And I realize it's like the radio. You know, when I tell people to turn down, turn down your radio oh. and listen through the phone, it's the same with this. So just pay attention when you come in with the questions next time. Anybody that comes in with a question, pay attention to the stream, not the app. Turn yeah. down the app, turn away from it. This is about, it's about to go down, Dr. Carr. Um, about to go down. It's going down. Like, the possibilities are endless. And then we can actually have conversations that are nubia centric you know because we, we have to be slightly careful um even talking about spilling other blood uh because nobody is calling for that no no however metaphor our, our blood gets spilled anyway but yeah that's right however um you know I, I would love to talk about you know self-defense and how we build you know um spaces ah. you know what george is talking about george jackson with you know uh, in that book, and I would love to dissect some of those chapters here that I would never do anyplace else. So, yes. so there's that. Yes. Hands yes. are rubbing together. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, uh, I will see you in them streets next week. See you in the streets. Talk to you in a minute. Yeah. All right. Love, love you, bro. Okay. Bye, everybody. Thank see you for joining us.